another opportunity to come and to study your word. Lord, we come with open minds, with eager hearts. Lord, we come with ready attitudes to apply what we learn. Lord, we want to not just be hearers of the word, but we want to be doers. And so we ask that you speak to us, encourage us tonight, Lord, by your spirit, through your word, in Jesus' name, amen. It's been said, absence makes the heart grow fonder. But that adage didn't apply to Paul's relationship with the Corinthians. For in his absence, a rift occurred. Paul was in Ephesus when news arrived that problems had erupted in the church at Corinth. From Ephesus, he penned his first letter, a letter of correction to the Corinthians. The reaction to Paul's rebuke was mixed. Some of the people repented. A godly sorrow led to repentance. But other believers in the church resented Paul. They bristled up at his letter. How dare Paul? Who does he think he is to correct and to question us? They began to question Paul's authority. They began to cast doubt on his integrity. News of their reaction to the first letter to the Corinthians came to Paul in Macedonia. And it was there that he wrote another letter to the church at Corinth, this letter that we call 2 Corinthians. And in this letter, Paul defends himself. He stands up for his ministry. He confronts his accusers. 2 Corinthians is an emotionally charged book. Raw feelings get exposed. Nerves are on their edge. Paul shares his heart and pleads his case in this book as he does nowhere else in the scriptures. 2 Corinthians is an instructive book for those who serve the Lord. Ministry is not always easy and hassle-free. Sometimes you're hurt by the people you're trying to help. Ministry can get downright messy at times, and this book gives us helpful instruction and helpful encouragement. In chapter 1, verse 3, Paul introduces our God in heaven with an interesting name. Paul calls him the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. What a, what a wonderful name for God to choose to reveal himself to his children. God is full of mercy, full of all comfort. You know the Greek gods, they threw down thunderbolts. They liked to inflict curses. They attributed natural disasters and sudden calamities to the capricious whims of their gods. What a pleasant surprise for these Greek believers to hear the true God referred to as the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. In times of trouble, the Greeks ran from their gods. We as Christians, in times of trouble, we run to our God. Paul tells us in verse 4 that God comforts us in all our tribulation. This English word comfort is from a Latin, two Latin words, which mean with strength. And as we talked about this morning, God's comfort is not a pity party. When we get knocked down, yes, God dusts us off. God nurses our wounds, but he doesn't coddle us. He pats us on the back and he sends us back into the game. My high school football coach had a rule. If you were seriously injured, stay on the ground. Don't move a muscle. Someone will come and assist you off the field. But if you just got your breath knocked out, or if you just cramped up, you were supposed to do all you could to get off the field on your own power. He didn't want anybody clapping for you just because you got hurt. You know, I think that 
there are a lot of us that think we deserve a round of applause just because we got hurt. Understand, the Lord Jesus refuses to assign permanent disability to anybody. His goal is to limit our sick days. He's called the balm of Gilead. He's a poultice that sucks out pain and poison. Jesus is more concerned with healing our hurts so that he can get us back into the game. We've got a battle to win. And we need all hands on deck. This is why he comforts us, strengthens us, fortifies us in our tribulations. And Paul tells us why God allows us to suffer in the first place. Verse 4, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Sufferings prepare us to help other sufferers. Suffering produces empathy in our hearts. And just to know you've been there makes it easier for me to be there. Empathy is a powerful, powerful force. Paul tells us in verse 5, For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. In other words, suffering carves out in our hearts a greater capacity for experiencing God's love. I like the Living Bible's rendition of verse 5. It says, You can be sure that the more we undergo sufferings for Christ, the more He will shower us with His comfort and encouragement. Here's a neat little poem. Until I learned to trust, I never learned to pray. And I did not learn to fully trust till sorrows came my way. Until I felt my weakness, His strength I never knew, nor dreamed till I was stricken that He could see me through. Who deepest drinks of sorrow drinks deepest too of grace. He sends the storm so he himself can be our hiding place. His heart that seeks our highest good, knowing well when things annoy, we would not long for heaven if earth held the only joy. Suffering carves out for us a greater capacity to know and experience the love of God. Also, our sufferings help us comfort others. They deepen our apprehension of God's grace. And then third, they teach us to lean on Jesus rather than ourselves. According to verse 8, while in Asia, Paul and his party was burdened beyond measure above strength so that we despaired even of life. That's a biblical way of saying we were mega stressed. We were bummed. We were on the verge of giving up. Note what Paul learned in verse 9. We had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves but in God. Isn't it true? We learn faith only when we reach the end of ourselves. It's at the end of our rope. That's where we find God. It's always the case. God puts us in suffering situations, difficult situations, so that we can learn to trust in Him, not in ourselves. And the fourth purpose for sufferings is stated in verse 11. You also helping together in prayer for us. Troubled times. Force us to pray. Imagine investing 18 months of your life starting a church only to have those people try to discredit you once you had left. That's what had happened here in Corinth. Paul was angry and hurt. He was betrayed. He was frustrated. And he begins his defense in chapter 1 verse 12. He says, we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity not with fleshly wisdom, but with the grace of God. Paul says, I've got a clear conscience. I've got no ulterior motives. 
I serve you in simplicity and in sincerity. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 6 and 7, Paul had told the church that he intended to stop off in Corinth on his way to Macedonia, but he qualified his intent. He said, if the Lord permits, Paul made plans, but all of Paul's plans were contingent on the will of God. But that's why some of his critics in Corinth had misinterpreted his attitude as sort of a wishy-washy tendency. He says, hey, if you can't trust Paul's plans, then how can you trust what he preaches? And in verses 17 to 21, Paul defends his preaching. He says he was never undecided or ambivalent in his message. It was never a, a well, a yes and no, or a, a oh, maybe. No, he says in verse 20, for all the promises of God in him are yes and in him, amen. Paul may have been tentative in his plans. He may have left that up to the Lord, but he was emphatic in his message. He knew the, knew the truth, and he was faithful to declare it. In verse 23, Paul explains why he bypassed Corinth. He didn't want to go there when he said he might, because he didn't want to have to chew out the church. He was upset at the time with their carnality, and he chose to rather give them time to repent. On his visit to them, he wanted to fellowship, not disfellowship those who had disobeyed. And that's why he gave Silas and Timothy first crack at correcting them. He sent his two partners on ahead. When Paul does eventually visit the church, he hopes he will rejoice with them rather than sorrow over them. Paul writes of his first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 2 here in 2 Corinthians, verse 4. He says, for out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears. And you remember one of the issues that Paul addressed in that first letter was the need for church discipline. You recall the situation? Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there Paul mentioned that there was an incestuous relationship going on in the church and the church was tolerating it as if they were doing a good thing. Paul told them they needed to excommunicate the culprit in hopes that he would learn a lesson. The Corinthians had obeyed Paul's orders and their action had resulted in the man's repentance. Church discipline, it's tough, it's hard, but it works. Now Paul is concerned that they restore this repentant brother. He's learned his lesson. Now they're to forgive him and allow him back into the church He tells them in verse 8 here, he says, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. Hey, Paul was quick to judge sin, but just as quick to extend forgiveness to a broken and a repentant sinner. Hey, Satan will always try to bury a forgiven person under a mountain of guilt and condemnation. And if we're reluctant to forgive, we play right into Satan's hands. Paul was always the first to kill the fatted hat fatted calf whenever the prodigal son came home. Paul was quick to love them and restore them and receive them again. When a Roman general won a military campaign, he would parade through the city with his prisoners and with his plunder. On the parade route, people would burn incense in honor of his victory. And the fragrance let everyone know that the conquering hero was home. That's why in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, Paul uses this picture of the conquering general to describe our purpose in life. We are the plunder. We are the prisoners in Jesus' victory procession. 
And our lives are the perfume that scents the air with the news of his triumph. As Christians, we are the body of Christ. And as with anybody, we give off a body odor. Did you know that? We do. Are you a sweet smeller? Or are you a stinker? Are you a perfume? Or are you a noxious fume? Verse 14 says, Through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. I trust you're a sweet smeller. Like most professions, pastors too have resumes. And when a church is looking for a pastor, they will look over, they will pray over, they will read over a man's resume. Here's a list of statements I ran across that a pastor should not put on his resume. A few things a pastor needs to leave off the old resume. Number one, in the five churches I have faithfully served over the last two years. Not a good thing for a pastor to put down on the resume. Number two, I've learned to cope with financial crisis at every church I've served. (laughs) My extensive counseling of church members provides me a rich source of sermon illustrations. (laughs) Not a good thing for a pastor to admit, at least. (laughs) Here's another. My personality has provided me ample opportunity to develop conflict resolution skills. And finally, here's the kicker. Here's the one you definitely don't want to put on your resume if you're a pastor. I require Sundays off. It's best that a pastor leave all those things off his resume. You know, it was not uncommon in Paul's day for traveling ministers to carry with them letters of recommendation. In fact, Paul's critics in Corinth were questioning his credibility because he lacked these formal letters. Never mind that Paul had started the church, that they owed their very salvation to Paul's preaching. No, the Corinthians, they got hung up on the resume. They wanted to see his letters of recommendation. And in chapter 3, Paul tells these Corinthians that they are his letters. They are his credentials, his resume. In chapter 3, verse 3, Paul refers to them and to us as well as an epistle or a letter of Christ. Now, under the old covenant, Moses' law, the law was written on stone tablets The law was God's will, his heart for mankind. But you see, when a principle goes from a man's heart to a tablet, you run the risk of several things, of it becoming lost, of it being misinterpreted, of it being misunderstood. And that's what had happened to the law. The law never changed, but over time, man's interpretation of the law no longer resembled its original intention. When God established the new covenant, he took no chances. He planted His will into man's heart. Rather than write the law down on stone, God now writes His law in our hearts. We become born again. And God writes His intentions in our heart, in our very nature, that new spiritual nature that we have in Christ Jesus. The Old Testament was a list of directions that would lead a man to God if he could follow them. But you know, you can botch even the very best directions. And that's why under the new covenant, God bypasses the direction 
In fact, he plants a homing device in our hearts. That homing device is the Holy Spirit. And our job as new covenant believers is to just follow the Spirit. Verse 6 puts it this way. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The written law leaves us alienated from God, but the indwelling Holy Spirit brings us home to God. Paul states his next thought in verses 7 and 8. He says, but if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? Now you remember the story back in Exodus chapter 34. We're told that when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, when he was holding the written law in his hands, his skin literally radiated God's glory. His face glowed. He had a divine shine. I like to call it the Mo glow. (laughs) Eventually, though, that shine dissipated. And its brevity spoke of the transitory nature of the law. The law was never intended to be a permanent source of righteousness. Its glory was passing away, whereas the glory of the grace of Jesus lasts forever. To shield the Hebrews from God's glory, Moses wore a veil over his shining face. You see, the Hebrews were unworthy to see and to know God. And thus that veil, and a spiritual veil, became a fixture in Judaism. But verse 16 tells us, the moment one turns to the Lord, this veil, this separation, is taken away. In Christ, our sin is forgiven. Righteousness is is secured. In Christ, we are as worthy as we can get. We can know God. We can see His glory. Suddenly, the blindness and the confusion lifts off of us. The glory of the law made us focus on our own deficiencies, whereas the glory of grace allows us to focus on the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. The old covenant was all about rules and rituals. Christianity is all about faith and freedom. As chapter 3, verse 17 puts it, The Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. There is no longer a veil blocking God's glory from you if you're in Christ. You can see, you can know, you can fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Know God's glory and be changed and transformed into it. That's why verse 18 is so important. He says, but we all, now with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. God strips away the veil of guilt and separation and invades our hearts with His glory and His presence. Now we look on Christ, we behold His glory, and it's like a mirror. That glory is reflected back upon us. And the more we look on Christ, the more He rubs off on us, and we're transformed from glory to glory to glory. As we look to Jesus, we become like Jesus. What a glorious thing. Under the old covenant, you conformed to the law. Under the new covenant, you are transformed by the inner workings of the Spirit and of Jesus Christ. You're changed from the inside out. You see, a metamorphosis takes place. The caterpillar, the old Sandy, becomes a butterfly. The new Sandy. The roughed out rock becomes a crystal. 
A change occurs, first in my spirit, then in my thoughts and attitudes, finally in my actions. And you know, the amazing thing is about this transformation is that it all takes place, it happens without us even trying. Maintain an open face toward Jesus and He affects the changes in you. The Holy Spirit does the work. Your job is to look to Jesus with humble heart, with open face. And you'll be transformed by that reflective glory. You'll be transformed into a new person. Chapter 4 begins, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. The glory of the message also affects our approach to the ministry. You see, a glorious gospel needs to be conveyed by faithful ministers. And this was Paul's goal. Above all else, he wants to be faithful. He's been given an incredible gospel. The grace of God, can you imagine? Its glory exceeds the glory of the law. Now he should faithfully deliver it and he should refuse to lose heart. He's also, he says, renounced the hidden things of shame. Verse 2, craftiness and deceit are not Paul's style. His job is to present the truth. Just let the gospel sell itself. You know, our last family car... I purchased from CarMax. I was so tired of all the bickering and haggling and squabbling and bargaining and lying and everything that goes on in most used car lots. You know, that CarMax claim of a good car at a fair price, it just appealed to me. You know, they say their price and the only price is the sticker price. Take it or leave it. The policy said to me that they had confidence in their cars. Paul had the CarMax approach to the ministry. You see, other evangelists were like used car salesmen. They embellished the truth. They made false claims. They glossed over details. They tried to hide costs. But not Paul, man. He was up front with the message. He laid it out clearly and succinctly and honestly. Paul, you see knew that the gospel was a good deal and it would sell itself if he just let people know about it. In fact, the gospel is such a good deal, the only way a person can reject it, if you think about it, is if their eyes have been blinded. And that's what happens. Chalk it up to the God of this age, Paul says. Satan is the one who blinds men to the truth of Jesus. And this is why, guys, before we preach, we need to pray. Effective evangelism always follows a season of spiritual warfare. Reminds me of the waitress who was in a foul mood that morning. And when she served the man his cup of coffee, he commented, he was just trying to be nice. He said, looks like rain today, doesn't it? The man was just trying to be nice. But the waitress, you know, she was in one of those warny, nasty moods. And so she snapped back. She said, hey, I can't help what it looks like. We sell it for coffee, so just shut up and drink it. (laughs) Mention Jesus to someone. And no matter how nice you say it, no matter how kind you are, some people just don't want to hear it. There's an edge. There's an orneriness. And you know who it's caused by? It's caused by Satan. He's blinded their eyes. 
That's why we need to pray. And we can bring down those veils through the power of prayer. Notice verse 5. For we do not preach ourselves, Paul says, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. Christian ministry should be devoid of self-promotion. Our goal is not to attract attention to ourselves, but to attract all the attention to Jesus. Paul says we're servants for Jesus' sake. Imagine a servant with a fan club. Doesn't make sense, does it? When we preach, or when we share our testimony, or when we do a kind deed, what do people remember after we're gone? Our funny stories, our flamboyance, our exploits. See, it's not just what we say, but it's how we say it that makes a difference. Are we pointing people to Jesus, or are we pointing people to ourselves? Sometimes you can serve the Lord, but you can do it in a way that promotes yourself. Paul is saying, let's not fall into that trap. We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves, your servants, for Jesus' sake. Verse 7 tells us, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Now, at first glance, this is such a strange idiom. Who puts a treasure in a clay pot? This is like serving steak and lobster on a paper plate. Or an expensive wine in a styrofoam cup. Or wrapping up a beautiful diamond in a brown paper sack. It's just not fitting. It's not appropriate. And yet this is what God has done. He has taken the most valuable treasure on earth, the gospel, and he's placed it in clay pots. Can you imagine? You see, that's what we are. We're made of clay. We're nothing but cracked pots. Trust me. Imagine, God places the gospel in ball jars. (laughs) You know what a ball jar is, don't you? What a strange thing. D.L. Moody was the Billy Graham of his day. A man used by God in mighty and marvelous ways. And once a reporter was sent out to analyze his success. And this is what he wrote. He said, I can see nothing whatsoever in Moody to account for his marvelous work. I hope that's what they say about me. This is God's way of design. This is, his, this is His plan. This is how He does things. This is how He works. He uses rough and coarse and uncouth and uncultured human beings, clay pots, so that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. All the glory will go to Him and not to us. People often get the wrong idea of ministry. They think it's glamorous. They think it's rewarding constantly, all the time. But Paul sums up his ministry in verse 8. He says, we are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about in the body of the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. Paul's saying, my ministry is a slow death. I'm dying away so that Jesus' life can be seen and glorified in me. Once Mark Twain boarded a train for Sioux Falls. He didn't want to carry his briefcase on board and he thought about checking it in, but he wasn't sure if it could withstand the rough treatment from the baggage handlers. And so he asked the porter what he thought. 
The man took the briefcase and he threw it on the ground. He says, that's what it'll get if it makes it to Philadelphia. And then he slammed it against the wall about a half dozen times. And he says, and that's what it'll get if it gets to Chicago. And then he stomped on it with his feet until all the papers came out. And he said, that's what it'll get if it makes it to Sioux City. Twain picked up his briefcase and put the papers back in it. And that's when the porter concluded. And sir, if you end up going any further to Sioux City, I suggest you just carry it on yourself. Paul was like Mark Twain's briefcase. Everywhere he went, he got stomped on and slammed against the wall and roughed up and beaten up. And you would think that Paul would want to quit this ministry. But don't count on it. Paul writes in verses 16 through 18. He says, Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. I love these three verses. In them, Paul tells us why we should take heart, not lose heart. He draws three contrasts. The first contrast is what's going on in the outward man versus what's going on in the inward man. He says the outward man is perishing, but the inward man is being renewed day by day. Are you experiencing that? Before I turned 30, I was in perfect health. I was the picture of perfect health. I could go to sleep late, wake up early, I was a dynamo of energy. But when I hit the big 3-0, I went downhill. Since turning 30, I've had four surgeries, developed allergies. My beard's gray. My chest has sunk to my waist. My best friend is a tube of Preparation H. And I now appreciate a nap in the afternoon. The other day, my kids were showing off their six-packs, you know. Six packs. I said, well, I got a six pack. It's just still in the refrigerator. (laughs) But let me tell you something. And this is glorious good news. While this outward man deteriorates, the Spirit of God invigorates this inward man. Outwardly, I'm wearing down fast. But inwardly, spiritually, I am getting stronger and stronger and stronger by the Spirit of God. The second contrast that encourages Paul is the contrast between the world's afflictions and heaven's glories. It's amazing. Paul endured incredible hardships, shipwrecks, stonings, imprisonments, beatings. But notice what he calls it here. He calls it our light affliction. Wait a minute, Paul. How can that be light? Doesn't seem light to me. Hey, it's not light until it's compared with heaven's glory. Heaven's highs, the weight of heaven's glory, make today's burdens seem light as a feather. Guys, heaven is so heavy. Your first second with Jesus 
will more than make up for a lifetime of pain here on this earth. The first second, you'll say, man, it was all worth it. And notice Paul says, our light affliction is just for a moment. Compared to eternity, life on earth is a split second. It's a millisecond. A million zillion years from now, the pain we feel today will have long be forgotten. It will be remembered no more. All that will be before us are the glories of Jesus Christ. Notice the third contrast in these verses. It's between the things visible and the things invisible. Guys, focus on what you can see and you will lose heart. Watch television news and you'll lose heart. But read your Bible and you'll take heart. Circumstances will rob you of your faith, but focus on spiritual realities. God's truth and love and grace and mercy and fellowship and integrity and faith and hope will grow in your heart. Hey, take heart. Don't lose heart. The outward man's perishing, but the inward man is being renewed. The earth's trials and tribulations may seem heavy, but they're nothing compared to the tremendous glories of heaven. Don't trust in the things you can see, but the things that you can't see. In chapter 5, Paul's eyes are fixed on eternity. He speaks of our glorified bodies in verse 1. He says, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Notice what he calls our earthly bodies. They're just tents. Temporary dwellings. When a believer dies, his spirit no longer resides in this body. The spirit immediately leaves and enters into the presence of God. No pit stops, no naps, no sleepovers. Verse 8 says it best. To be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. And one day we'll be given a heavenly eternal body. In verse 2, Paul calls it our habitation, which is from heaven. These corruptible bodies will be transformed by the power of heaven. At the rapture, we'll be given new bodies fit for the presence of God. In the meantime, Paul tells us in verse 7, we need to walk by faith, not by sight. You see, Paul lived today in light of a day yet future. You want to know how you can make it through tomorrow? Live today in light of a day yet future. The day he mentions in verse 10, he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, the term judgment seat here is actually in the Greek. It's the Bema seat. And it referred to a platform in Greek towns where important civil and community announcements were made. In other words, it was where rewards were given out, not where judicial decisions were handed down. This is not their court system. This was just a community place where rewards were given to local achievements. This isn't the great white throne judgment that we read about in Revelation, where the lost are judged and cast into the lake of fire. This is the Bema seat, where Jesus judges his own people, you and me. The judgment seat of Christ is where believers are going to be rewarded for the motive behind their acts of service. And we're all going to stand there one day. And the things we've done for God will be tried. Tried as by fire to see if they come out as wood, hay, or stubble, or as gold and silver and precious stones. It will all be dependent 
upon the motive behind what we've done. Paul's critics in Corinth, not only did they question his ministry, they even criticized his appearance. From all historical accounts, Paul was a short man. He was hunchbacked, and he was really downright ugly. They said his eyebrows sort of met together. looked like a big caterpillar crawling across his face. He had a big crooked nose. He was a pitiful sight. And you see, the Corinthians, they wanted their pastors to look like captains on the football team. Paul was a mite of a man, but he says in verse 14, what made him so powerful was that the love of Christ compelled him. You see, Paul learned a lesson from the Lord. Jesus died. Jesus rose again. And after Jesus' resurrection, his body was transformed. He no longer appeared as he once did. Paul no longer now looks to Jesus as he appeared while on earth before the resurrection. Now he envisions Jesus as the post-resurrection in his glorified form. And that's how Paul has learned to see and treat other people as well. Notice what he says in verse 16. He says, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Now, now guys, that's a heavy statement. And if there are any men here tonight that battle with lust, you need to read verse 16 again carefully. Here is the key for you overcoming that area of temptation. It says, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. The key is to learn to see other people, other sisters in Christ, as who they are in Christ. Look to the inner person of the heart. Look to the spirit. Look past the flesh and see that person as who they really are deep down inside. Here's a quote from supermodel Carol Mallory. Everywhere I went, my figure followed. But I learned I am not my figure. Aren't you glad you're not your figure? (laughs) I'm glad I'm not my figure. Hey, there is more to us than flesh and bone, flab and folds. And you know what? It would transform our relationships if we learn to look past the flesh and see each other in a spiritual light. You high schoolers are going to swim in tonight. You need to look past the flesh and look at the inner person of the heart. This is how we all need to see and treat each other. Paul says, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. I'll tell you what you've become in Christ Jesus. If you're a believer in Jesus, you're someone special. Verse 17 tells us, For if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. If you're a Christian, you're a new species of creation, a new species of human being that has never before roamed this planet. You are God's special miracle. The real you. The core you has been transformed. The old nature has been replaced with a new nature. Rather than please yourself, your deepest desire now is to please the Lord. Hey, you are the envy of the Hebrew prophets. You are what makes the angels jealous. You are something special. You're a new creation in Christ Jesus. Learn to see yourself in that light. And you have a vital ministry as well. 
Perhaps you've been looking for a ministry. Maybe you've been praying for a ministry. Verse 18 says you already have one. It's the ministry of reconciliation. It's been given to all of us. Our role on earth, the reason we've been put here and left here, is so that we can take the hand of a repentant sinner and put it in the outstretched hand of a loving God. That's our job on this earth, is to reconcile a loving God with a repentant man. Verse 20 tells us we are ambassadors for Christ. An ambassador is a representative of one country who's living in a foreign country. This is you and me. We are official emissaries of heaven living here on earth. And our job is to voice and demonstrate heaven's values in the midst of a fallen world. On the cross, Jesus was dying to save us. Now, according to verse 20, through you and me, he is pleading with men to be saved. The chapter closes proving just how far God went to save you and me. Verse 21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus bore the full brunt of my wrong so that I could be right with God. Isn't that amazing? And you know what? That's a message that I should never hesitate to share. I should never back down from my ministry of reconciliation. I should never be ashamed of being an ambassador for Jesus with such a glorious, glorious message and and gospel to share. And Paul not only pleads with sinners to be saved, he also pleads with us saints to redeem the time. He says, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. Guys, did you know that salvation is a seasonal business? It's like beach balls. In Christmas tree ornaments, it's only offered at certain times. Right now, God's shelves are stocked full of salvation, but the day will come when it will be found no more. At the moment, the Holy Spirit is at work in the world, drawing men to Jesus, but He won't be forever. One day, the day will be up. Time will be over. The opportunity will have ceased. Best strike now while the iron is hot. Paul knew that by its very nature, the gospel would offend some people. But he never wanted to be offensive himself and turn people off unnecessarily. Paul experienced incredible hardships, but he always conducted his ministry in an impeccable manner. In verse 11, Paul says that he's been spilling his guts. As he puts it, our heart is wide open. He's hoping the Corinthians will just will be just as honest with him as he's been to them. Verse 14 gives us an important principle. Verse 14 is chapter 6. It says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. You see, the harness that pulled the plow usually held two animals. But it was vital that those animals be of the same breed. If you mixed breeds... You would end up with the animals working against each other rather than working with each other. That there would be two animals of two different natures that would fight against each other. That's what happens when a believer and an unbeliever enter a bonding kind of agreement. Friction rather than harmony characterizes that relationship. It's true in marriage. It's true in business. 
It's true in any joint endeavor or joint venture that binds a believer and an unbeliever together. Put two species in the same harness of a different species and their natures will pull in different directions. And trust me, it will cause you great pain. Here's the bottom line. Some things just don't mix. Righteousness and lawlessness. Darkness and light. Christ and Belial or Satan. Oil and water, honey and vinegar, dogs and cats, driving and drinking, water and electricity, tech in Georgia, hot cars and chocolate bars, sunshine and homework, and believers and unbelievers. Now, don't misunderstand. To be an effective ambassador, we have to have contact with the world. But contact and interact doesn't mean entering a contract. And that's what you need to avoid. Paul begins chapter 7 with three traits that should be true of every Christian ministry. He says in verse 2, We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have cheated no one. Or if phrased in the positive, it might read, We have maintained integrity in our relationships, in our leadership, and in our stewardship. Important principles for a leader. Paul's ministry in Macedonia had been particularly difficult. And he summarizes it in verse 5. Outside were conflicts. Inside were fears. I've been there. How about you? What encouraged Paul was a report he received while in Macedonia. Titus had just returned from Corinth and told Paul that the church had responded positively to his first letter. His correction had been received and the corruption had been cleaned up. Paul says in verse 8, For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it. You know, sometimes the truth hurts. And it takes a faithful friend to share it with you. You have to admire Paul's commitment to his friends. He was willing to risk friendship with them in order to save and repair their fellowship with God. You see, Paul had no problem stepping on your toes if he thought it would drive you to your knees. That's a faithful friend. In chapter 7, verse 10, Paul mentions two types of sorrow. Godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. He says, for godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. You see, worldly sorrow is self-directed. You you know worldly sorrow. You you hear people, oh, I'm sorry I got caught. I'm sorry that now I might have to suffer some consequence. Worldly sorrow produces crocodile tears. A lot of self-pity, but no real desire to change. Reminds me of the man who stole wood from the lumber yard. In fact, he stole so much wood that he built a house for himself. One for his son. One each for both of his daughters. All with the stolen lumber. He was so grieved, though, over his sin that he went to the local priest to confess. The priest heard him and then he answered. He said, this is a serious offense. And you're going to need to perform a severe penance. Have you ever thought about doing a retreat? The man answered, no. But if you can get me the plans, I can get the lumber. 
<laughs> That's not godly sorrow. Godly sorrow is God-directed. It realizes that I've broken the heart of God. That I have failed my Lord. That I've disappointed my Savior. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. Which is the willingness to change. That's what repentance is. It's the willingness to change. It's the willingness to say, Lord, I'll do whatever you require. I'll do whatever it takes not to let this happen again. That kind of attitude. That's true repentance. And Paul is thankful that the Corinthians had exhibited a godly sorrow over their sin. And that brings us to the end of chapter 7. And that's where we'll pick up next week in 2 Corinthians chapter 8.